and gentlemen, this is This is The Real Mission Impossible Show With your host, Lucien Are you ready? We search the globe for the most amazing people who have overcome incredible obstacles Demonstrated amazing resilience, done the impossible I said, are you ready? Join, Join the real coach and Jay on the Real Mission Impossible show. Meeting legends from Dubai, South Africa, Nairobi, New York, London, wherever they are to make it possible for the Real I Impossible with Coach MJ. The Real Mission I Impossible show starts in... Let's count down together! 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Boom! Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Real Mission I Impossible show. I'm Coach MJ, your host. Tonight... You're going to meet one of the top generals of the United States Army who served over 30 years and then had other military assignments, even at the Pentagon itself. I'd like to introduce you to our our fireside check guest tonight. His name is Major General Craig B. Weldon. General, thank you for coming. How are you? I'm doing great, MJ. Thanks for the invite. Yes, sir. We had a chance to read your book, by the way. It was an honor. I'm going to just plug it a couple times during this. It's leadership, the art of inspiring people to be their best. And this is based on some very, very serious years invested in learning the art of leadership. You tell a great story. You do it in a wonderful way, a very easy, palatable read. I just thoroughly loved it. And I highly recommend it to anyone who's ever thinking about a leadership position. You did a great job there, Joe. Well, thanks. It's it's done well. It's uh, it's won three national awards and it's a number one international bestseller. So on Amazon. So I'm pretty pleased with it. And just about everybody, every organization that I speak to about leadership and life lessons purchases a copy of my book for attendees. So I've sold hundreds of copies uh, in that way, and in some cases, given them away. Yes, sir. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll certainly be hanging on to this one, and just so that just so I can like show off a little bit to my audience who might be seeing this through Zoom or eventually YouTube. I have an inscription here from you <laughs> with my treasure. Yeah. Very well. Glad it arrived safely. <laughs> yes, sir. So what I'd like to do uh, as we unpack your story, by the way, for those of you who are listening, Major General Craig B. Weldon is retired, but I will be out of pure reverence and respect. I will be referring to him as General. And throughout this course, I'd just like to say that he is a speaker, and we're going through this pandemic, so a lot of the activities of speakers, including myself, have been relegated to virtual environments. Podcast is one way, webinars are another way, and I think you just had two speaking engagements recently. I even caught something that you were doing something in Sri Lanka, is that right? Yeah, about two weeks ago, I did a podcast for about 450 people in Sri Lanka, which was a a new and really interesting experience for me. So I've I've got new friends in Sri Lanka now. Yeah, I I can promise you, having been to Sri Lanka and spoken there physically, it was a new experience for all of them too. A, to meet someone uh, with your portfolio, and secondly, to actually have this virtual experience. We're all going through this. These are unprecedented times, as you as you know, as yeah. everyone knows. Yeah, absolutely. That was about two weeks ago. Last week, actually, I was in Indiana where I gave three presentations. One uh, was Zoom, 
and two were live. And the live ones were interesting. They had limited attendees because of COVID, spaced appropriately. Everybody wore masks and so forth. But uh, it was uh, it was my first live experience in a in a number of months. Yes, I would I would think you got the jump on on most of us because we haven't heard this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's hard to gauge audience reaction when you can't see them. Yes, absolutely. I mean. I remember my, you know, one of my first uh, podcast interviews or Zoom inter- interviews, actually a webinar back in April or May, and I'm looking at my screen and I can't see anybody else. I can't, there's not even a monitor, like there's a monitor where I can see you tonight, but there was no monitor at all. So you're totally shooting in the dark. At least a pilot has IFR, you know, he's got instrument yeah, yeah. Records. you got nothing. Yeah, and, you don't, you you don't know, know if they're laughing or they're asleep. Yeah. Yeah, and then you got at the end you got crickets. Yeah, you don't know exactly. what's what's going on. You're you're in South Carolina right now, so the best thing you can do with crickets is go fishing with them. <laughs> yeah, I had a great time. We had gone down to South Carolina years ago. One of my favorite dishes. I think uh, we we touched base on this before, and I think it might be something that you like too. What's your favorite dish down there? Uh, shrimp and grits. Shrimp and grits. Yeah. It's the only place in the world. Now, if I explain this to somebody in Dubai, yes, um, I like to tell you about shrimp and grits. And my friends are from different parts of the world, even the people from the UK. I had one lady say, grits, that's something we put in the road when it gets cold. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, only great, in the south. Great, great area in the south, yes, yes. And a very big food town, Charleston, for example. You're in Bluffton, is that right? Yeah, I'm two hours south of Charleston and just about 30 minutes north of Savannah and maybe a 30, 20, 25-minute drive from Hilton Head. So, yeah, I'm in a really good place to be able to, to stretch out and see the ocean, see the mountains, or see the history of Charleston and Savannah. Yes, and, uh, of course, in case, I don't know, General, do you golf? Not very well, but yes. Okay, so you're like most of us. You're just ambitious, Yes. But not necessarily super talented, but That's there's right. lots of golf all around you, even Myrtle Beach, not yeah, too far. Yep. There's plenty of golf here, that's for sure. So, General, I'm going to ask you uh, to just share a little bit with our audience. I know for sure, because you're a highly sought-after speaker, and if you don't mind me saying so, very well paid as a professional speaker, I don't want to step over the landmines of some of the great stories that you do have but I would just like to kind of walk the audience through how you came into the Marine Corps, first of all, or the Army, sorry. What got you motivated to come into the Army at that, at that age? And then tell us a little bit about your journey there so that we can, we can pick it up. Okay, well, I was in an Air Force family, and my dad was stationed in Europe when I was going through high school. I went to Paris American High School, then I went to a high school for two years in Belgium. So I didn't have an opportunity to look at many colleges because I was in Europe for three years of high school. So I went to Purdue University. I applied for an ROTC scholarship to help me get get it paid. The Army gave me one. And so I owed four years back to the Army. I never planned to make the Army a career, like many people perhaps. But, you know, pretty soon the four-year obligation I had from the Army turned into 30 years. Then I retired and I went to Florida hung my shingle out, said, I'm a consultant, somebody hire me. My last job in the Army was the deputy commander of U.S. Army Pacific in Hawaii. 
And about five years into a Florida stay, my wife said to me, I'd like to go back to Hawaii. And I said, Hawaii? Are you kidding me? Hawaii's expensive. I'd have to get a job. And she said, good idea. So I started looking for opportunities to get back to Hawaii. And two years into that search, and that's a whole nother story that we can certainly talk about if you like, but it took me two years to find the job that I landed with, with the United States Marine Corps. They created a senior executive service position to move 10,000 Marines out of Okinawa to Guam and build a base in Guam. And I threw my name in a hat for that. I thought I had some qualifications and uh, I was surprised that I was selected because the, the Marine Corps is pretty anal about who they pick. If you're not a former Marine, there are some who say you're not worthy of breathing their air. So I was pleasantly surprised when I got selected for that position and humbled, quite frankly. And off we went to Hawaii in 2010. And nine years later, I retired from that job. So for the last nine years, about last October, almost a year ago, we moved to South Carolina to the next chapter of my life. But um, about two and a half years ago, my wife said, I'm ready to move on. And I said, where to this time? She said, we're too far from family. We're here in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and I'd like to get back to the East Coast. So we settled on Bluffton, South Carolina for a variety of reasons. Family is relatively nearby, certainly within a half-day drive, north or south. And I decided I'm going to start a whole new chapter in my life. Somebody asked me about the time I made that decision a couple of years ago, what do you want to do next? And I said, I want to give back decades of leadership and life experience to the next generation. And they said, well, then you need a book. And I said, a book? Are you kidding me? I can't write a book. That was pretty intimidating. But to make a long story short, I ended up writing a book. And it was published about a year and a half ago on Amazon. And as we said earlier, it's, it's done very, very well. It's sort of the foundation of my presentations. Leadership and life lessons or inspirational leadership is not the only arrow in my quiver. I have a number of other ones that you can find on my website, uh, talks that I do. A very popular one is my experiences at the Pentagon on 9-11. But the go-to presentation that I really enjoy doing, because not only is it educational, it's motivational and inspirational, is this one that's tied to my book, Inspirational Leadership in Challenging Times. And that's the one that I do to corporate America, to nonprofits, to worthy organizations, to colleges and universities, and so forth. And uh, this COVID has put a little bit of a dent in my ability to do that. But I've discovered Zoom like so many other people have. And as I said, just two weeks ago, I was doing a podcast with 450 of my Sri Lankan friends. Yes, indeed. And uh, do you know where they were? Were they in Colombo, I guess? or uh, They were in Sri Lanka, yeah. The hosts, the hosts were in Colombo. Uh, one of them was. There were two hosts. In fact, that's going to be posted. That whole uh, podcast is going to be on my website in about two days. Um, but one of them was in Colombo. One of them was in the outskirts in the, in the country. So I had two co-hosts. And it was a fascinating discussion with a completely different culture. And when we got done, they said, we want you to come to Sri Lanka. I did a quick uh, Google search, map search, and it's about a 9,000-mile journey. But, but, you know, who knows? I may end up in Sri Lanka, a place I never thought I would go. Well, it's a wonderful country. I have to I highly recommend it. And, you know, General, I mean, things will get back to normalcy where travel will be possible, feasible again. And, you know, putting together your contacts to build yourself a, a little book tour in Asia to do India and then Sri Lanka and then on to 
Singapore, Vietnam, there's a big opportunity out there. I highly, highly suggest that you might think about that. As a tactician, you being a general, of course, I'm giving you advice. <laughs> and that's well received, I'm telling you. Yes, sir. Yes, but sir. but the, one of the points I would make to your listeners is I just turned 69 years old about two weeks ago. God bless you. Happy birthday. Thank you. And, I, and I've started a new journey in my life. I'd like to tell the story about climbing a ladder. In fact, it's a chapter of title of one of my books called How Tall Is Your Ladder? And as the story goes, the chief of staff of the Army came out to Fort Leavenworth when I was a student there 35 years ago and uh, spoke to all of us, his senior general in the Army, four-star general. And uh, somebody at the end stood up and said, General, how do you determine success in today's Army? And he thought a moment. He said, you know, most of you probably think that I've been successful. I'm a four-star general. I'm the, four, I'm the chief of staff of the Army. And we all thought, duh. <laughs> yeah, of course you've been successful. And he said, but there are another 11 or 12 four-star generals in the Army who, if they had my job, would be disappointed if they retired as the chief of staff of the Army. And we all scratched our head and thought a moment, why in the world would that be? And he said, because a career in the military, a career in life, quite frankly, is like climbing a ladder. When you start out, you're at the bottom, your feet are on the ground, you haven't really started, you're full of energy and, and ambition and everything else. But when you look up this ladder, it's a very, very tall ladder. And for the military, the, t the ladder's top rung is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And as the Chief of Staff of the Army, I'm not at the top rung. So when you begin your journey, you reach out, you grab the first rung, and that's relatively easy. And then you grab the next rung, and that one's not too hard either. But the more you climb, the higher you get, the thinner the air, the more tired you become, the rungs get further apart. It's harder and harder to get to the next rung on your ladder. And sometimes you'll find yourself standing on a rung, and you can't reach the next rung. The only way you're going to get there is by jumping, which is risky because you're high in the air. At every one of us are going to get to the last rung on our ladder at some point. So if you're asking me what success in today's military is, set an objective, strive to get to a rung on your ladder. But if you ever get there, be satisfied. Everything else is that after that is gravy. And if you can't get any higher than that, get off of that ladder and get onto a new ladder. And that's exactly what I did a year ago is I got off the military ladder and I got onto a brand new ladder called Author and Speaker, one that I had done some of. I had written some articles in my life. I had certainly given speeches as a military member, but I'd never certainly done it in the commercial world and had to um, manage my life and everything around speaking and, and so forth. So this is a great new adventure that I started at age 68. And uh, for me, it's all about the journey, not so much the destination. Yes, thank you for sharing that. Today we had a, a little schedule change. I'm just going to share this. So there was a 30-minute extension that we wanted to do on our side, and we notified you after the fact that we've already scheduled it. And I just thought to myself, this is a major general. I just basically changed the schedule on him without asking him first. I wonder what would have happened to me had I been – in the military in charge of logistical planning and there there was you way up on the ladder and i wonder what kind of helmet i would have to have on after that no quite frankly i would have probably said if we were both in the military 
particularly if I knew you well, that you probably had a good reason for changing the schedule. I mean, you have to assume the best when you trust people. You have to trust people. Somebody once said the best way to trust someone, to learn whether or not you can trust someone, is to trust them. And so I've thrown that trust out there at the beginning. And uh, I used to tell people in organizations that I came into, look, I trust you until you demonstrate that you're not worthy of that trust. And that puts a healthy bit of pressure on people not to violate that trust from the very beginning. One of the things that I got out of your book in the first few chapters, you kind of talked about setting expectations when you had a new command. And I'd just like for our listeners here tonight just to kind of hear that because they may find themselves maybe not in a military position, but they might find themselves in a leadership position taking over a new office or a new branch or a new territory. And I really thought there was a lot of wisdom in what you were doing. Yeah, so I have, and certainly your listeners probably have experienced this before. You go into a new organization, you get a brand new boss into your organization, and it takes you a while to figure out what he or she really thinks is important because they don't really tell you that up front. And if you find yourself weeks after they arrive or months after they arrive, still scratching your head wondering, what in the world does this person think is important? That's very, very frustrating. Because I've experienced that myself, every time I went into a new organization, one of the very first things, and I'm talking about the first 24 hours of my arrival, is to sit the team down and say, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I have a presentation called Weldon on Weldon, which is Weldon talking about Weldon. It's actually in my book. It's Annex B. It's in in the back of the book, yes. In the back of the book. I have another document that I wrote called Philosophy of Command, which is also in my book. It's Annex A in my book. I wrote that 30 years ago, 31 years ago, when I became a battalion commander and I took command of an organization that had a thousand soldiers. I wanted to make sure that that organization understood what I thought was important, what I thought was non-negotiable, and the direction that I wanted the organization to go. I also wanted to know them to know that, look, I'm joining your organization and I'm going to be the steward for the next two years, but I'm not a king and I'm not going to be here forever. And so while I'm in charge, this is the direction I'd like to go. This is what I think. I am proud to be a member of this organization. I will try to make myself worthy of being your commander. And you'll see that kind of tone in the philosophy of command. As I reread that before I wrote this book, 30 plus years later, I thought, You know, when I wrote that, uh, that's how I felt. And today, I would write it very, very similar that I did 35 years ago. Before I published that and distributed that, and this is before the time of even word processing, quite frankly, it's in the late 80s, I sat down at my kitchen table, I wrote it out on a legal pad, I typed it up, I went to a copy place, I made copies, I put them in envelopes, and I sent them to probably 15 different people who I know and I trust uh, their judgment that would give me good feedback. And I said, look, this is my philosophy of command that I'm considering issuing on the first day that I take the flag of the 1st Battalion, 10th Cavalry. Can you tell me whether that's the way you see me or not? And I got feedback from all, all these folks that I sent it to I did a little bit of editing to tighten it up a little bit, and I got great feedback because sometimes leaders, particularly senior leaders, don't have a sense of self-awareness. They can look in the mirror 
and they're not seeing the same thing that everybody, same person that everybody else has seen. And so it's, uh, particularly as you get more senior, you need that kind of feedback from people who have worked for you, people who have worked with you, and people who you have worked for. Get that candid feedback so you can make sure that what you're reflecting in the writing is in fact who you actually are. And it must and so be I, tougher I, in the yeah, military. That. Let, me, let me give you one story here. Yes, um, I once worked for a three-star general. When he came in, he had his first staff meeting the day after his arrival. And we went into a conference room and it was a long table. He sat at the end and at the other end of the room was a clock. And he looked at the clock and as the staff members came in, he showed up about five minutes early, but as the staff continued to roll in and they sat down at, at their place and there was a nameplate for each one of them. When the second hand hit nine o'clock, he turned to his aide, he said, close the door and lock it. So his aide closed the door and locked it. And there were two members of the staff missing. They were late. And so when they showed up and they found the door locked and they tried to open it, it they couldn't. And they knocked on the door. And he turned to the aide and said, don't, don't, don't answer the door. So he was trying to make a point. And he was trying to make a point about timeliness and how important to him timeliness is. And I'm not saying timeliness is not an important thing to be concerned about. But I'm not sure that was the best way to convey that. Because what he did was humiliate a couple of colonels on their very, on their second day of his command. And he certainly made the point, nobody missed him. But I think there's another way to make that same point. And maybe it was that he would bring everybody in, even if they were late, and then he would go through his, whatever his name was, Weldon on Weldon, and tell everybody, that timeliness was one of the things that was very important. Don't ever show up late. But he decided he was going to do that in a different way. And I'm, I'm just thinking that maybe there was a better way to do that. Well, you know, I mean, that's, that's your emotional intelligence, which is very rare. I, I think the point I wanted to make is that, you know, in the military today, you're not in the military. So when you go to these conferences and when you get hired by these companies to go in there and speak the message that you have, which can resonate with corporate America, they are relating to you simply because you're a speaker celebrity, not a general who has chain of command or the power over them to order them here and there. And when you're ordering people around, that's a whole different leadership style. I think what I believe, I read your book, I believe that you had this emotional intelligence from a very young age as, as you went through the ranks and that's probably served you very well in the military, and it will certainly continue to serve you as a civilian. Yeah, so let me tell another three-star story, which is kind of the opposite of the one I just told. I worked for a guy who was a consummate gentleman. Um, I was his deputy. I was a two-star at the time. And he was uh, very, very polite. He never raised his voice in anger. He was uh, very methodical in everything that he did, uh, and everybody loved him. And a colonel came up to me one time, and he said, you know, General so-and-so is the toughest guy I have ever worked for. And I thought, really, why is that? And he said, because I never wanted to disappoint him. Wow. And I thought, wow, that is powerful. Because this colonel, and I'm here to tell you, because I was in the organization, just about everybody else in that organization, when they got up in the morning, they went to work, 
They wanted to do the very best possible job they could for the organization, for pride, certainly, but because of who led the organization, that three-star general. And the last thing any of them wanted to do was disappoint him. Yes. That, that's truly effective and inspirational leadership. And very, very rare. And yet, what a powerful statement it is for anyone out there listening to, to this and, and really is thinking about up in their leadership game. It's, it's that, that dynamic is having that mag- magnetism that you have empathy for people, set the expectations, be the model, show them the way, and be, the, be able to uh, let that resonate throughout the organization so that they know what you expect and want to please you as a result. Yeah. Yeah. People, uh, people often ask me, is leadership nature or nurture? And my answer is it's a little bit of both. Some people are born natural leaders and, some pe- and, and that can be improved through effective training. Other people are not born that way, but they can be developed. And the military does a pretty good job of identifying who the best leaders are and nurturing that uh, through training, through mentorship and, and other means. And other organizations do as well, certainly. But, you know, I tell people mentorship, for example, one of the types of mentorship that I talk about in my book is what I call virtual mentorship. And what do I mean by that? I mean that when you walk through your life, professionally or personally, imagine you're walking down a path. And along the path, a dirt path, along the path are rocks. And each of those rocks represent the good things that you experience and some of them represent the bad things that you experience. What I tell people is pick up the rocks that you find along the path, both the good and the bad, and put them in your backpack and carry them with you through your career, through your life, so that you can repeat the things that you saw in your experience that were good, and you can avoid the things by remembering them, the things that you were bad. So for example, if I was a second lieutenant and I watched a colonel or a general do something that I was particularly impressed with, I'd say to myself, oh, remember that. If I ever get to be a position like that, I wanna make sure I'm just like that guy or that gal. By the same token, I worked for people and saw people uh, that were the opposite, that you don't wanna be like. And I said to myself, wow, if I ever get to that position, I hope I'm never like that. Yes. You see these uh, people, when they get promoted to a particular level, they turn into bullies and narcissists and alienate everybody around them because it's all about me, me, me. And that's the sad part. When you are a leader and you see that that's going on, that's really because of lack of training and lack of nurturing and, of course, not really having a good model to follow ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah, there's a story – called memento mori. It's a Latin term. It it means remember you are mortal. And as the story goes, a Roman general was coming back from the battles that he had just successfully won. And he was going on his chariot through the streets of Rome. And all those citizens were on either side telling him how wonderful he was. And standing behind him on his chariot was his slave. And his slave leaned forward and he whispered into his ear, memento mori which means remember you are mortal, that you have an Achilles heel. And too often I see senior leaders who fall uh, because they forget that they're mortal. They'll think they're above the law. They think they're above acting like uh, a decent human being. They become narcissists and so on and so forth. 
always remember your roots. Remember where you came from. And quite frankly, if you recognize the people who are at that stage now and tell them how wonderful they are, they will stay in the organization. And in my case, stay in the military. And maybe they will grow up and eventually become the senior leaders of the military one day. But if you don't treat them with the dignity and respect that they deserve, they're going to go find something else to do. And that's quite frankly the same in the corporate world. You know, if you have a team that you put together and you treat them very, very well, uh, they're going to stick around because they want to get up every morning and please the boss as well as make the organization succeed. I love one of your stories where, uh, there was a, a leadership exercise, and the leadership exercise, they closed the doors, and all the young leaders were in the room. They said, okay, now, what's the janitor's name? Oh, yeah. That was actually an academic environment. So a graduate course of, uh, not military, graduate course on leadership, and the professor had a test. And everybody came in to sit down and took the test. He had about 20 students there. And he said, they opened, back in my day, they used to have what they called a blue book which was, uh, you know, in, in colleges where you'd write an essay in the blue book. So they opened the blue book and at the top there was one question. What's the name of the janitor that cleans this room? And nobody knew. And everybody had an opportunity to know that because they saw him every single day. He was there when they were taking their class, both before they went in and after they went in, after they left at the end of the day. Nobody bothered to, nobody in the class bothered to thank him for what he did for, you know, keeping the, the facility running. He was more than just the janitor. He was the kind of the building engineer that kept everything running uh, right. And they all failed the test that day, uh, but they got a powerful lesson that, you know, everybody who's on your team that contributes to the success of your mission, whatever it is, ought to be thanked. And thank you for bringing up the word mission, because this is the Mission I'm Possible show. And I would just like to pick your brain just for a few more minutes that we have left here, General. Of course, we're going to have you on two more times in our leadership session as well. Uh, but for tonight, I'd like to bring you back to uh, un the unfortunate date of 9-11 and ask you to narrate, if you don't mind, your experience there. Where were you? What was going on? How did you feel? And how can we take lessons from that? and navigate in the future going through the unknown that we're going through now. Yeah, so on 9-11, I was a deputy commander of U.S. Army Pacific stationed in Hawaii. But on that particular day, I was attending a conference in Washington, D.C. And I was in the Doubletree Hotel, which is just across 395 from the Pentagon. It's not a little more than a stone's throw. It's about 2,000 feet. If you drew a line on a Google map, from the conference room I was in to the point of impact of the airplane. So we were in the basement in a conference room having this meeting. It was an army meeting. And it ironically and coincidentally was hosted by uh, a two-star general whose office spaces were at ground zero at the Pentagon. He left two secretaries in his office to, to watch the phones. Both of them were killed that day. He had 40 to 45 other people from his office over at the hotel where I was uh, in the meeting. So the death toll would have been higher by dozens uh, had he not scheduled that conference for that particular day. It was only a one-day conference. So when the first airplane hit the World Trade Center, the South uh, Trade Center tower, somebody came in the room and told us about it. 
And quite frankly, we didn't pay a lot of attention because we thought it was an accident. Thing, those things happen. We also didn't know what the weather was like in New York. Actually, there's planes have hit buildings in New York before. In fact, one of the famous stories is I think it was a B-25 hit, hit the uh, Empire State uh, Building uh, during World War II or shortly after. In any case, we didn't pay much attention to that. But when the second tower was hit 17 minutes later, somebody came in and told us the second World Trade Center has been hit by an airplane. And we knew immediately that that was no accident. You don't have two airplanes 17 minutes apart hit the two World Trade Centers. So we immediately hooked up a uh, telephone line to the Army Operations Center in the Pentagon. We got a television down in the conference room. Of course, we had no idea that Washington, D.C. was being attacked. And we started monitoring the situation. It wasn't too much longer that somebody ran in the room and told us that a big explosion had occurred over at the Pentagon. And when we ran outside, what we saw was a big black plume of smoke rising on the other side of I-95 or 395. My first instinct was to call my wife in Hawaii to tell her I was okay because she thought I was in the Pentagon at this meeting. I couldn't get through. So I went upstairs to my hotel room. I called her. I said, please call the command center in Hawaii. Tell them I'm okay and I'll get back as soon as I can. I don't know how long I'll be here. And then call my parents in Indiana and tell them I'm okay because they knew I was in Washington and they thought I was in the Pentagon. And then I hung up and I went over to the Pentagon and I tried to do whatever I could to help. I remember on that Tuesday morning, it was about 10, 10, 15, 10, 30, somewhere in that range, somebody got on a bullhorn and yelled, get away from the building. There's another airplane coming in. And all of us that were there, first responders, some from outside the Pentagon, some from inside the Pentagon, moved away from the building and got on the other side of the highway until the all clear was given. I learned later that that was the fourth airplane that eventually went down in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. That was the only time we had a, uh, an alert to move away from the building. But sometime in the late morning, I was standing next to the Arlington County fire department chief. And I said to him, what can the army provide to help you? Because he was the one that was leading the response to put out the fire, to save lives, to recover bodies and so forth. And this is a fire that burned for almost 48 hours. He said, I need blocking and bracing material to hold up the sides of the building so that it doesn't collapse on my firefighters as they go in or victims who are in there uh, anymore, because the longer this fire burns, the weaker that portion of the building will become. So I called the 3rd Infantry Regiment, which was nearby at Fort Myer. They are the ceremonial guard for the Army. They're the ones that do the ceremonies at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, the burials in Arlington Cemetery, and they do a lot of other ceremonies around Washington. What people don't realize is they have a wartime mission, and they are a very highly trained, effective infantry organization that has an engineer company associated with it. So I asked them if they could get their engineer company to bring as much down to the Pentagon as they possibly could that could assist the fire chief in holding up the sides of the building. And about two hours later, I found myself standing next to an FBI agent and in starts rolling these trucks from the right, army trucks. And he turns to me because I'm in an army uniform and he says, what are those? And I said, those are trucks from the 3rd Infantry Regiment. They're bringing in blocking and bracing material to help hold up the sides of the building for the fire chief. Why do you ask? And he said, because they're driving over my crime scene. 
<laughs> and I thought, wow, what a different perspective he has yes. than the fire chief. The fire chief was trying to put the fire out, save lives, recover lives. Yeah, yeah. He What he wanted to, to do is lock the place down so that he could do an investigation. Yeah. And I'm not being critical of the FBI because they're a wonderful organization. Yeah. But it highlights and profiles the very different perspectives of two first responders at a, at a crisis situation like that. It is a perfect uh, analogy because today we've had people who had to have their priorities completely changed. They've had the carpet pulled out from underneath their feet and they're wondering, you know, they want to do fine. What can I do? They're asking themselves to themselves. They're doing a welded on welded. What yeah. can I do to help yeah. my family? What can I do for a job? You know, we have millions of Americans who are out of work and, and fearful that they might not be able to make it through the next couple of weeks or even months. So what advice could you give those people who are out there feeling a bit helpless right now? Is there any, any tips now, that you can share? It's important to continue to persevere, uh, to try to keep a positive attitude. I have a chapter, and I won't tell the story, but I have a chapter in my book called The Light at the End of the Tunnel. And it was about a, and maybe we can tell it on the, one of the follow-on podcasts, but it basically was about a very difficult time that I had years ago in my own life and how I didn't see any light at the end of my tunnel. There are millions of people in America right now that cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. And oftentimes they can't see it because they're in a bend and it's just around the corner, but it's there. Or maybe it's a little further and it's a straight, but it's still there. And I have experienced, I don't know how many times in my life, difficulties and challenges that patience, perseverance, hard work, leaning on your friends, all those kinds of things help people find the light at the end of the tunnel. And most of the time, there is light at the end of the tunnel. If you just sit there and feel sorry for yourself, and you don't try to get up and make the best of what you have and keep working hard at it, you may be stuck in that tunnel for a long time. But I'm here to tell you most of the time, there's a light at the end of a tunnel. A light at the end of the tunnel. Major General Greg B. Weldon, what an incredible guest you've been here tonight. I look forward to having you back on to our leadership series. I know this story. I read it. Uh, it's a beautiful story. And believe me, folks, when he says there's light at the end of the tunnel, you might not see it, but that's what, what faith is all about. Thank you, sir. God bless you. And on behalf of everyone listening, thank you so much for your service. Thank you, Coach. Appreciate it. God bless you, sir. Thank you for joining The Real Mission. We welcome you to explore the next real mission on Possible with Coach MJ. Meet ordinary people who have achieved the extraordinary. Like, share, and comment to inspire others today.